And as you're being seated, if you'll open your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 today. Got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm just going to kind of jump in real quickly here. One of the major differences between a Christian person and a secular person is how we understand time. Now, it's important in the culture in which we live today that those of us who are believers in Christ, that we begin to understand how our worldview differs from uh, those that are not. And it's also important that we begin to be able to uh, wear that comfortably so that we can dialogue about how we see life and and how that differs from uh, how others may see life. Uh, When I talk about a secular person, what I mean is somebody that is either an atheist, one that denies the existence of God, an agnostic, one that doubts seriously that God exists, or it might be someone that is in the de- demographic that we call the religious nuns. Uh, they basically just don't really think about spiritual things. They may not be antagonistic towards Christianity, but they're just kind of living in the moment. They don't really think about it. Uh, let me give you a, an example of how this happens in a lot of people's lives. How many of you are Premier League soccer fans? I got like five, six in the room, okay? So, so the rest of us, uh, you know it exists. You know that it's a big deal somewhere in the world that stadiums are full of people that are cheering uh, rabidly for their team, that they have uniforms, things like that. But it's just not on your radar screen. It's not something that you follow. It's not something that you think about. There's a lot of people, when it comes to spiritual things, they are religious nuns. They just don't ever think about it, and so that's just where they are. They live a secular life. So back to my original thought. One of the big differences between a Christian worldview and a secular worldview is how we understand time. A Christian person I'm going to define as someone who has turned from sin and turned to Jesus. They are a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, if you're a secular person, You're going to understand life through the natural order. Essentially, we come from nothing. We have these moments that we call life. And then whenever life is over, we return to a state of nothingness. Now, because of that, it demands that meaning is found in the present. So there becomes this obsession with real time. Christians, on the other hand, see life as part of the divine order. Humanity was created in the image of God. God is sovereign. God extends to us life here. But one of the great defining differences is that as Christians, we believe that there is life after death. So for a secularist, they live life on the clock. Time is always decreasing. Time is eliminating life. And because of that, you must absorb Uh, life's experiences, life's pleasures, life's things. And generally, in that mindset, success is going to be found either through materialism, that which you can collect, or through the collection of experiences. And because you're trying to absorb all the things and experiences that life has to offer, you attack anyone who tries to restrict your hedonism. If you are a secularist, then traditional values are often attacked because they are seen as restrictive. 
So if you have a restrictive view of sexuality, that it belongs to marriage, if you have a restrictive view of parenthood or uh, marriage, or if you have a, a view of responsibility or of gender, if, 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 if something restricts your sovereign ability to absorb life, if you are a secular person, you must attack that because that is keeping you from finding the true meaning of life. Now, if you think about this, it's going to lead you to a selfish view of the world because the clock is always running down. And there's almost underneath the surface, there is this panicked obsession with real time. Now, Christians find success in the person that you are. Uh, success is ultimately a, a spiritual thing. And as believers, we, we believe that Christianity is not just behavior modification, but Christianity is actually heart transformation. And so God changes your heart whenever you come to Christ. And as you draw near to the Holy Spirit, you become a more mature Christian. You become a spirit-led person. So that the Spirit starts changing you from the inside out. You start having love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the the fruit of the Spirit. And so your life becomes sharing the love and wisdom and experiences, uh, who the Holy Spirit is making you. Sharing that with your family, your church, and the world around you. And you live your life out in faith. Now if you've wondered, come back to me at this point here. The secular person sees the timeline of life in terms of themselves. So you have past, present, and future. If you're a secular person, you ultimately see past, present, and future within your lifespan, what I call the 100-year window in which your life exists. And so history might be important, but its greatest importance is how it impacts your life today. And when it comes to death and aging, If you are a godless person, those two concepts make you a nervous wreck. And I, as a pastor, I go to funerals, I do funerals, and one of the things that I observe is that people that are just caught up in the here and now, and that's all they have whenever it comes to growing old or dying, there is this panic that sets in. And then it quickly leads to a denial where they push away from it and pretend as if it's never going to happen to them. Correspondingly, a Christian sees the timeline of life through the lens of an eternal God. So whenever we look at the past, we see that God has revealed himself, his purposes and his ways. He has given us Holy Scripture, which teach us his purposes, and his ways. And we have a cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews talks about, millions of people who for thousands of years have lived their lives based upon these eternal truths of God that have been revealed to humankind. As we look at our life today, my lifespan may be short or it may be long, but I have one basic goal in my life that then runs through every area of my life, and that is I want to bring glory to the name and fame of my Lord. And as you mature in the faith, one of the things that happens is you become more comfortable with the reality that life here is temporary. Because as we see the future, 
we don't just see the future in terms of what's my next five years look like, what's my next 20 years look like, but as a Christian, we see the future in terms of eternity with a faith, a belief that when eternity happens, the injustices will be set right, the broken shalom of creation will be restored, and we will be with God not just for uh, 50 years, 80 years, 100 years, but we will be with God forever and forever. Christians see time fundamentally differently than secularists. In my life, uh, I spend a lot of time talking to people. And my house is exceedingly loud. I have a seven-year-old, five-year-old, two-year-old, one on the way, two Labrador retrievers, and wood floors. And there are times where the volume just gets overwhelming. I actually have an app on my phone that measures decibels. And there's times where the kids will just be doing their thing, and I'll pull out the phone just to see how loud it is in the house. I'm like, hey, it's as loud as a jackhammer going off in the living room right now. And then they keep on going, and I'm like, hey, a jet just took off in our living room. It is amazing how loud it can get in my house. And, and you're probably a lot like me. I have to fight for time to think. And it, it's really easy to get so caught up in the stuff of life, and especially with all the communication channels that we have coming in right now. It's really easy to get so caught up in what has to be done today and what's happening right around you, the real-time obsession, that we never really think about the future. Last spring, I I taught through the book of Galatians on Wednesday night, and as I was doing that, the Holy Spirit showed me a practical, everyday truth from Scripture that I'd never really completely grasped. And so I wrote it down, and, and here's what I wrote down in my journaling, for me to see my life for what it is, I must first see my future for what it is. Earth is a hotel stay. Heaven is home. And and what I'm beginning to realize is that spiritual growth takes off. And I believe one of the reasons why you come to church is because you desire to grow as a spiritual person. And spiritual growth takes off when you see the future through the eyes of an eternal God. We're in this series of messages called His Stories. And in these messages, we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And so our parable today, it illustrates the importance of being able to see the future through the lens of God. It illustrates the importance of being prepared for the future and living life in faith. So if you have your Bibles Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Now you say, time out, Lash. Did Jesus just compare heaven to ten virgins and a groom? Yep, he did. You say, okay, I'm listening. What's the rest of the parable going to be about? Well, in Bible days... A virgin was a young girl who was uh, physically mature, and she was about to get married. She was of marrying age. Now, they also had the same reference that we would have in our modern-day vernacular towards what a virgin is. But uh, in ancient weddings, 
the bride and groom, they would exchange vows. Then the groom would go back to his home, and he would begin preparing their dwelling. He would make all the preparations necessary for them to begin their life together. Then he would send word to his bride that he was coming. And so the bride would prepare herself and she would get ready. Now the bridal party included a group that Jesus refers to here as the virgins. To help you understand, the virgins were very similar to what a bridesmaid might be in our modern traditional weddings. Now, one of the things that happened, when the groom would arrive at the bride's house, they would have a march back to the groom's village. And so the bridesmaid's primary job was to have lamps that that lit the way. And so as you saw groups going down the paths, you would know this is a wedding party because you would see all these lamps marching with the bride and the groom. When they arrived back at the groom's house, they had a banquet. And sometimes that banquet, our party, would last for like a week. And get this, sometimes the honeymoon lasted for an entire year. Amen. Come on now. Yeah. Well, in verse 2, five of them, Jesus says, were foolish and five were sensible. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the sensible ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When I was pastoring in Austin, I was doing this wedding in Zilker Park and outdoor wedding, so things are a little bit different. And one of the first things that happened was the bride was 45 minutes late for the wedding. So there was a lot of wondering where the bride was going to be. But finally she arrived, and we were in this gazebo in the middle of the park, and everything was going well now. We had exchanged vows, we had prayed, and we were at the ring ceremony. The groom placed his ring on the bride's finger, and then I turned to the bride, and I said, do you two have a ring to give to your husband? And she looked at me and started laughing, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what's about to happen? And she said, "Uh, uh, the ring's in the car. Now, the parking was about a half mile away, and so I'm thinking, what are we going to do? Well... Her dad jumps up and says, I'll go get it. And he starts sprinting across the park to get the ring out of the car. You say, well, what would you do? Well, I said, well, let's pray. So we all bowed our heads, and I was praying, and I was praying, and I was praying. And he wasn't a very fast runner. And so, um, you know, I was now praying for the missionaries in Cambodia and things like that. And finally I hear the, the, the dad come back. <sighs> And so we continued with the ceremony, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, for these ten virgins, their main responsibility was to have oil in their lamps. To forget that was to forget the ring. Now, the spiritual point here, what Jesus is getting at here, is that some were prepared for the moment, and some were not. Some were ready. Some were going to be caught off guard. Verse 5, since the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now I can see the scene in my imagination. The groom is all excited about this day. He's waited a long time for this moment. And so he loads up his 27 AD Ford mule wagon, and he begins making his journey to the bride's house. And along the way, he blows a tire. 
to his dismay, discount wagon wheels is closed, and so he becomes the groom that's late to his own wedding. Meanwhile, the poor bride, she's crying her eyes out. Where is he? Why isn't he here? Mascara running down her cheeks, used Kleenex gathering at her feet. Why would he do this to me? Why would he leave me here? Why would he be delayed? This doesn't seem fair. This is just wrong. Perhaps even a debate broke out amongst the bridesmaids. I told you, you shouldn't marry him. He's a slacker. Look, he's late. You ought to date my friend Paul. He's a real nice guy. And so this debate eventually wanes and the bridesmaids drift off into sleep. And in my imagination, I see the lonely silhouette of the waiting bride, wondering why the groom is delayed, wondering why this has happened to her. A lot of questions, a lot of doubts. In verse 6, it's now the middle of the night, and there's a shout. And someone cries out, Here comes the groom. Come out to meet him. Well, Jesus says, Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish ones said to the sensible ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. And the sensible ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell and buy oil for themselves. So in the story, the time had now come. The preparation was over. The bridegroom comes. And for the five virgins that Jesus called the unsensible ones, light was about to run out. Now there's a practical reality to the story, but there's also the spiritual reality. Their light was about to run out. Time had diminished. The clock had reached zero. And so panic and negotiation began to set in. And there's a spiritual lesson right here in the story. And that is that the faith of the prepared was not transferable. And there's something that we need to understand here when it comes to faith. You have to have a personal relationship with God yourself. It's not enough to have been raised in a godly family. It's not enough to be taken to church and grow up in church. At some point, you yourself must have that personal faith relationship with God. Sometimes as parents, we want to do everything that we can to to help our children know right and wrong and to love God. But at the same time, we have to remember we can't be the Holy Spirit for our children. There has to be that time where God grabs their heart and they turn to Him in faith because the faith of mom and dad are not transferable to the children. They have to have their own faith. Well, in verse 10, when they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived. And then those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet And the door was shut. Now at this point, I want to talk to you about four spiritual truths that are found in this parable. And the first is this. Everyone looked the same until the groom arrived. I can imagine all the virgins had matching dresses that they had picked out together. They probably had identical lamps. 
that they could have purchased at Macy's for $100, but they were able to find 50% off with a Groupon and got them through. You know how wedding shopping goes. They all looked the same. They all had matching dresses and lamps. And the spiritual truth here is that while we are on earth in this point in time, there are a lot of similarities between those who are believers and those who are non-believers. We're all born. We live our lives. During the course of life, there's a lot of parallels. We go to school. We graduate. We get married. We have children. Hopefully, you're able to grow old. Eventually, life here comes to an uh, end and, and, and you die. And during the course of life, we pretty much dress alike. We have a lot of the similar things, uh, both believers and non-believers. We go through moments of joy and we also go through moments of sadness. People treat us well and people treat us badly. And there's a lot of similarities here in this point in time. But the second spiritual truth is this. When the groom arrived, the differences were exposed. In the story, the groom is to illustrate the coming of Christ. Specifically within this parable, the groom illustrates the second coming of Christ whenever Jesus returns to restore the world to its shalom. But in each of our lives, the day will come when the groom arrives. It may be at the second coming, or it may be on the day of your death. And when the groom arrives, those who prepared themselves are ready. And those who have not prepared themselves are panicked. Those who are not ready when the groom arrives begin a negotiation, a panic. But those who are ready begin a celebration. Secularism has appeal. If it weren't for this nagging little diminishing thing called time. Because eventually, the clock on real time, the clock on your life, runs out. And when the groom arrives, the debate ends. Faith and unbelief are exposed for what they are. Now, I also would uh, note here that In Scripture, Jesus being the groom and the church being the bride is often used as an illustration. And that same illustration moves into what we consider biblical covenant marriage. That our marriages are to illustrate Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. And there is to be a relationship within marriage that illustrates the love that Christ has for His church. And one of the things about Christ's love for His church is that He will return. He will not leave us all alone. The third spiritual truth is that once the groom arrives, it's too late. In verse 11, the story ends. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. But He replied, I assure you, I do not know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. So Jesus implores us in this parable to prepare yourself now, because once the bridegroom comes, it's then too late. 
from our perspective, the parable is ultimately about faith. It's about the faith that you have in God and the faith that you have in Christ. So let me ask you this question. When it comes to your future, do you see the future through the lens of faith? Or are you caught up in the grip of trying to absorb everything from the here and now? When it comes to time, do you see past, present, and future as purely revolving around you? Or do you understand that in the past there are sacred truths that God has revealed to us that shape our lives in the present? And our present exists to bring glory to God. And our future will exist with God for all eternity. How is it that you see time? When it comes to faith, and it's faith that will take us through the stages of time, there are also stages of faith. There's that initial stage of faith. When the Holy Spirit uh, begins to convict your heart that, yes, I'm, I'm not God, I have done things that are wrong, I need forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit begins to reveal to you the truths of the gospel, and you understand who Christ is and that He died for your sins and mine and that He overcame death, and you come to the realization that God calls us not to believe in ourselves, but to believe in Jesus. And so you place your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you take that initial step of faith. That's stage one in your spiritual growth, where you take that leap, you take that step. And by the way, if you haven't had that moment in your life, I want to talk to you about that. I want to help you if you have questions about what it means to be saved, to take that initial step of faith. I'd love to answer your questions, help you, because I I want to encourage you as a pastor to have that moment where you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But after that initial step of faith, you begin moving into a second stage of faith. It's the stage that I call the persevering stage. When you trust Jesus, but things are still not perfect. You've given your life to Christ, but there's still a lot of injustice in the world around you. And so you go through difficulties. And there are times where you wonder, where is God? Why has He delayed? Why am I in this situation? Why do these people act this way? Why do I find myself dealing with this persecution. And there are times where here in this realm, uh, Christians go through, go through just as much bad stuff here on earth as, as people who are non-Christians. And you start looking around and you say, hey, why is God blessing this person? They don't, they don't love God. They don't have a moral compass. Why, why isn't God bringing judgment on this? Why doesn't God do something here? And you have to have this persevering faith that continues to trust even though you might be enduring criticism, cynicism, and persecution for being a believer in Christ. And yet your faith perseveres. Your faith doesn't stop because you know that on the other side of the perseverance stage, there's the realization stage. There's that moment when, you, when the groom comes, when you stand face to face with Jesus And your faith and your hope are fulfilled by the eternal love of your heavenly Father. Now here's what happens. If you can't see time from an eternal perspective, 
If you're caught up in the idea that this is all that there is, you can get stuck in the perseverance stage. Because instead of continuing to persevere and abide and move forward in faith, you begin looking at the injustices and the difficulties of real time, and it causes you to retreat from your faith. For you to push through the perseverance stage and truly experience the joys uh, of what faith is all about, you have to expand your understanding of the future. It's not just the next 5, 10, 20 years. Heaven is a real place. Read the teachings of Jesus and see how often he talked about eternal life. Why did Jesus talk about eternal life over and over and over again? Because it's one of the keys to understanding what life in Christ is all about. And so I close with that thought that the Scripture, the Spirit taught me a few months ago. For me to see my life for what it is, I must first see my future for what it is. Earth is a hotel stay. Heaven is my home. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment. The band's going to come. I'll be here at the front. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, help you with, it is my joy to do so. I encourage you to sing. I encourage you to pray, to respond to the Holy Spirit, however he leads you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in you there is life eternal. And we thank you for the liberating power of eternal life because it frees us. It frees us from so many of the handcuffs that are in this world. Father, I thank you for the realities of eternal life because it provides for me hope, hope that there is more. And Lord, I think about people like my grandmother, my wife's father, godly people that I never had the privilege to meet. But I know that because of my hope in you, one day I will meet them. And Lord, I pray that you might adjust our perspective so that we can see time more as you see it. And Lord, I pray that knowing that heaven is in our future might revolutionize our present. So that we live with a joy, we live with an understanding of life here that is defined by you and not defined by marketing companies that tell us this is who we should be. Help us, Lord, to find our identity in you and to experience the riches of your joy that are only found through you. In Jesus' name, amen.